Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. This is the final episode for the Halloween series. And soon you'll be back to hearing all about serial killers, murders, and all kinds of true crime. Uh, The good news is, is that this episode, it's kind of a twofer. Not only does it involve crime, it also involves hauntings and potential demonic activity. It's also quite lengthy. So I've broken it up into two parts. Don't worry, though, if you want to play them back to back, you can. I'm not going to make you wait for them like a week or anything. Um, This episode in particular is about the Amityville Horror. And first, actually, in the 70s came the book, which became an almost instant bestseller. And next came the movie, which is what most people are really familiar with. The movie debuted in 1979, and it literally shattered box office records, not to mention scaring the crap out of millions of people. To date, it remains one of the scariest movies ever made, and not because it was just a scary horror movie, but that it was based on incidents that really occurred to a family over a 28-day period. Now, along with the movie's popularity, also came the skeptics, of course, who think that the whole thing was made up just to make some extra cash. Part of the reason some people believe that the story is made up is because the book and the movie, well, they both took quite a bit of creative license. In other words, what happened to the family was quite real, but how it was portrayed in the book and the movie was you know, shall we say, made more for entertainment purposes rather than actually telling the truth. The truth was scary enough. There was really no reason to elaborate on it whatsoever. What isn't in factual dispute, however, is that a man who lived in the home before it became known as the Amityville House, Ron DeFeo, killed his entire family and was sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in upstate Fallsburg, New York. Now, he died in prison in 2021 at the age of 69. Now, this two-part podcast will not only cover the DeFeo murders, it will also cover what supposedly led up to those murders And it will also cover the Lutzes, who actually moved into the home shortly after the murders happened. So grab your popcorn. On Wednesday, November 13th, 1974, At around 3.15 a.m., Ron DeFeo Jr., 23, the oldest son of George and Louise DeFeo and the oldest brother of four siblings, took a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin rifle and murdered his entire family while they were sleeping. 
The DeFeos lived at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island, New York. The same house that would become known for its horrific hauntings about a year later and dubbed the Amityville Horror. After the shootings, Ron cleaned up and then went to work that morning as if nothing had happened. Later on that night after work, Ron went to Henry's Bar located in Amityville and said, You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. So then Ron and a small group of people went to the house from the bar and found his parents dead inside. Ron's friend Joe then called the Suffolk County Police Department. When they arrived, they searched the rest of the home and found the rest of the family all dead in their beds. Found inside were Ron Sr., 43, his mom Louise, also 43, his sister Dawn, 18, his sister Allison, 13, his brother Mark, 12, and his brother John, 9. All members of the family were found lying face down in their beds and had all been shot at point-blank range. His parents had been shot twice, while the children were shot once each. All of the victims were found lying face down in their beds with no signs of struggle. By the time that Ron Jr. had entered that bar and said, hey, you need to come help me, the family had already been dead for about 15 hours. Ron was then taken into the local police station believe it or not, for his own protection because he had told the police at the scene that the murders had been carried out by a mob hitman named Louis Fellini. Now, during the police interview with Ron, Ron's story changed often. And we all know that this is a huge red flag, right? The next day, Ron finally broke down and admitted that he had been the one that had killed his family. Ron told the detectives, quote, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He then admitted that, yes, he had taken a bath, he had changed his clothes, he had tossed out the clothes that he had on that were all bloodstained, and he had tossed out the Marlin rifle and cartridges before he headed into work. He then told the police where they could find these items. Now, during the interrogation, Ron said that he had drugged his family so that they would not wake up as he shot them, but the medical examiner didn't find any evidence of this. The gun that was used in the murders also didn't even have a sound suppressor, and all of this is important because nobody heard the shots. The detectives were trying to get to the motive of the crime. You know, why would Ron do this? What was the purpose? Ron said that he and his dad fought a lot and were constantly at each other. And during the interview, Ron asked what he had to do in order to collect on his dad's life insurance, which, of course, sent up red flags to the detectives. Was this all about money? 
The question later gave the prosecution, of course, a reason for the murders, greed. On October 14, 1975, Ron's trial began. Now, Ron wanted to plead insanity. He said that he had heard his family whispering that they wanted to kill him, so he felt that by killing them first, it was in self-defense. The defense had their psychiatrist testify that Ron, yes, he was indeed insane. The psychiatrist for the prosecution, however, said that although Ron was a user of heroin and LSD, that he did have antisocial personality disorder. He had all of these. He was still very aware of what it was he was doing while committing the crimes and therefore was not insane. On November 21st, 1975, Ron DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life. Now, this is where it starts to get really crazy. After he had been convicted, Ron gave several different accounts as to how the killings actually happened. As a matter of fact, in 1986, he did an interview with Newsday and said that it was his sister Dawn who had killed their dad and his mom, who was so upset at this, then turned around and shot Dawn and then she shot her three kids. He then said that his mom finished by shooting herself. When Ron showed up to the house, he was so angry at what he had found that he then fired a second bullet into his mom. He further said that the whole reason that he went to prison rather than tell the truth about what happened was because he was afraid for his own life if he said that it was his mom who had done the shootings. He was afraid of his grandfather, Michael Briganti, and his father's uncle, Peter DeFeo, who police did say was a captain in the Vito Genovese crime family. Ron said that his grandfather, Michael, treated his mom, his daughter, like a goddess. And if Ron said that she had killed anyone, his own life would have been in danger. But the reason he's talking now is that Ron believes that both Michael and Pete are dead. So, quote, I ain't got nothing to worry about no more. It was later discovered that at the time he did this interview, Peter DeFeo was still very much alive. Louise's dad, so Ron's grandfather, Michael, not only did he pay the mortgage on the house in Amityville, he employed both Ron Sr. and Ron Jr. at his Buick dealership in Brooklyn. Michael gave Louise whatever she wanted. If she wanted a bottle of perfume, he sent her a case. If she needed a washer and dryer, he sent her two sets. Ron once said, how can my father be a man when her father's always there? So why was Ron at the house in the first place? Well, he said that he had been called by his mom to come and break up a fight between his dad and Dawn. Ron said that at the time, he was married to a woman named Geraldine Gates and that they had a child together and lived in New Jersey. After his mom called him, he and his brother-in-law, Richard Romando, went to the house. He said that Richard was with him at the time of the murders, and he could verify this. 
Now, there had been rumors and mentions of the occult where the uh, murders were concerned, but Ron defiantly said that it had nothing at all to do with that, that the murders were a, quote, bloody climax to a long series of arguments between his father and his sister Dawn that were typical of the family. He said his dad was a violent man who beat his wife. And the whole reason the fight began between Dawn and their dad in the first place was because Dawn wanted to move to Florida to be with her boyfriend and their dad wouldn't let her go. He said his mother and sister did the killings. Quote, my mother shot herself. That is a fact. There is another gun involved. That is a fact. To make the case even crazier than it is, in 1990... Ron filed a 440 motion. Now, this is a motion to ask the court to vacate his conviction. And the reason Ron wanted it vacated was that he said that there was an unknown assailant who had fled the house before Ron could get a good look at them. This unknown assailant first killed his parents. Then Dawn killed the kids. Ron said it was an accident that Dawn was shot because when Ron got there, they were fighting over the rifle and Dawn ended up getting shot. He still states that he's married to Geraldine and that Richard Romando, her brother, was with Ron at the time of the murders. Now, although an affidavit from his brother-in-law was submitted to the court, no one could ever locate this guy to get him to testify. Later on, evidence was submitted to the court saying that Richard didn't even exist and that Ron's quote-unquote wife was married to someone else at the time and actually lived in upstate New York. In 1992, this woman, Geraldine, gave a statement under oath where she admitted that Romando was not real and that she actually didn't marry Ron until 1989, hoping he would be released from prison under the 440 motion. The motion, to your surprise, I'm sure, was denied. The craziness, however, continues. In 2000, Ron met with the author of The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna. Now, this book was published in 2002. The author said that he and Ron talked for about six hours about what happened. Ron later wrote a letter to a radio show host and denied that he gave Rick any information that could be used in the book, saying that he, Ron, had immediately left the interview and didn't speak to Rick about anything important. The author, however, said that Ron claimed both he and his sister Dawn, along with two friends, were the ones who helped murder his family. Now, Ron truly believed his mom and dad were plotting to kill him. He said he and Don planned to kill their parents and then Don killed the rest of the kids to make sure they weren't witnesses. When Ron found out that she had shot the kids, he became enraged and then knocked her unconscious on her bed and then shot her in the head. Now, in Rick's book, many claims were made by Ron's ex-wife, Geraldine. In 1986, she also gave an interview to Newsday and said that she had married Ron in 1974. 
In the book, however, she says that they married in 1970. Their divorce decree, however, says that they met in 1985, married in 1989, and then divorced in 1993. So the bottom line is, is here we have this oldest child of the DeFeo family who has killed everybody in the house, including some very young children. And he agrees to go to jail because he's afraid of some relatives because he too does not want to be killed. Or it was a mafia hitman. Or this. Or that. Or it was this. Whatever the case is. His story changes so often. But as we'll see, there might be some rhyme and reason to this. Now, Rick Asuna's book, it was later turned into a docudrama, and the docudrama is called Shattered Hopes, The True Story of the Amityville Murders, which was released in December of 2011. You can actually view the entire documentary on YouTube. What's kind of crazy about this is that later, of course, all this stuff is going on with Ron Jr. It was later discovered that Ron Sr., had actually been very concerned for his family. About six months before the murders took place, Ron Sr. traveled to Montreal, Canada, to St. Joseph's Shrine, and brought back not only statues that represented the Holy Family, but also a priest. The priest came to do masses within the house. Now, no one really knows why Ron Sr. did this or what had finally been the tipping point to travel out of the country to get a priest. But as the priest was saying mass within the house, candles blew out, doors opened and closed, and there were constant footsteps. During this process, Ron Jr. left the house. Now, the statues that Ron Sr. had brought back, he had these placed in front of the house and he had built like pedestals for them because he said he, quote, had a devil on his back. Later on, and we'll get to this, but when the house was under investigation, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, well known in the parapsychology field with hundreds of haunting investigations under their belt, They would later say that Ron was probably under oppression, demonic oppression at the time. He was on drugs, he was into the black arts, and he eventually murdered his whole family. The, quote, devil that Ron Sr. was referring to was likely his own son. Now, neighbors thought that these statues were a little strange because they have never known the DeFeos to be overtly religious. And uh, strangely, when the neighbors were questioned about what they heard the night of the murders, no one heard a thing. Now remember, there were six people shot in that house, but mom and dad each received two shots. So that's a total of eight shots from a pump action rifle. Ron's attorney, Ron Jr.'s attorney, William Weber, conducted an experiment using the same gun to see how far the sound of the rifle would travel. 
And when they did this experiment, the sound could be heard four to five blocks away from the house. But on the night of the murders, no one heard a thing. Now, one neighbor eventually did say that they heard something, but what they heard was the DeFeo's dog barking around 3.15 or 3.30 in the morning. Ron's attorney, William Weber, also said that the family dynamic was, quote, bizarre and unusual. On one hand, they had religious artifacts throughout the house, and they later placed some of these outside the home with the statues. But when Mr. DeFeo was there, senior, there was constant fighting, bickering, yelling, screaming, activities that go way beyond the fighting that normal families may have. Ron Sr., his temper would go off for no apparent reason. And Ron Jr. was often the focus of these rages, included, including severe beatings by his father. Now, even Ron's friends, Ron Jr.'s friends, didn't want to come to the house because they were scared of his dad. Ron's friends even testified that Ron Sr. even beat his wife in front of them. Now, eventually in prison, Ron again begins to tell a different version of the story and says that the devil made him do it. Now, by this time, he's already told various stories about what happened. So people, as you might imagine, were skeptical at best. However, what's interesting is during Ron Jr.'s trial, it is said that a priest was in attendance and that he was watching Ron's, quote, performance. The priest thought that the performance was due to a demonic force. Ron's attorney asked him to talk about the night of the killings. So Ron's on the stand and his attorney is questioning him. Ron said that he had taken some drugs and he had fallen asleep in front of the television. When he woke up, he was in the room alone and he heard other members of his family whispering, conspiring to kill him. He then said a hooded, black-handed demon handed him the rifle, and Ron then went ahead and shot everyone. Now, years later, a story came out that by a journalist named Rick Moran, who said he was contacted by a DEA agent who told him that at the time of the murders, the same exact day and time of the murders, He had the DeFeo home under surveillance and that he had seen Dawn leave the house. Now, my question is, why didn't he contact someone? Surely if he was there, he would have heard the rifle shots or at least seen the flash that resulted from the shots, right? Unless, of course, like everyone else, even though he was right there in front of the home, he was surveilling the home he never heard or saw a thing in his eyes all he saw was someone leaving the house but just like everyone else he never heard any shots the journalist went on to speculate that Don and Ron had conspired to kill their parents together and then when Don realized that Ron wasn't in any shape because he'd been doing drugs to carry out the killings Dawn did it all by herself. Then she had killed everyone and Ron, in his despair 
over what she did, then turned around and killed Dawn. The fact remains, though, is that no one ever heard the shots and no one in the house, even all these family members are sleeping on different floors. No one in the house ever attempted to hide or run away. It was as if they didn't hear the shots either. It would later be mentioned by Lorraine Warren, who investigated the house after the new owners, the Lutzes, had fled, that she truly believed, um, as mentioned, that Ron Jr. was possessed when he killed his family. And as mentioned before, Ron DeFeo did die in prison in 2021 at the age of 69. On December 18th, of 1975, 13 months after the murders of the DeFeo family, George and Kathy Lutz purchased the home at 112 Ocean Avenue, mainly because, first of all, they'd already looked at like 50 other houses, and second of all, it was incredibly well-priced. 28 days later, they would abandon this house along with all of their belongings never to return. George Lutz was president and treasurer of a family land surveying firm. Additionally, he was an ex-Marine and a member of a motorcycle group. He even owned two custom motorcycles. Months earlier, on July 4th of 1975, he had married Kathy, who had three children of her own, And they had been looking for a house to call their own for some time. And after looking at dozens of homes, as I mentioned, dozens of homes, the real estate agent showed them the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. Uh, Built in 1928, it was a beautiful old house. And they were immediately drawn to it. Now, once the agent realized that they wanted to put a down payment or a deposit on the home... He then told them that the house had actually been the scene of a mass murder of the entire family. And while this did surprise the Lutzes, they talked about it and eventually told the agent that it didn't bother them and they purchased the home. What you might not know is that they purchased the house fully furnished. All of the furniture that used to be the DeFeos was still in the home including the bed frames where the family was shot to death. Not the mattresses, of course, but the bed frames. Now, when a friend of theirs heard the story of the house, he insisted that George have it blessed by a Catholic priest. And George, who was not Catholic, but a former uh, Methodist, actually brought in the only priest that he knew, one from the Rockville Center Diocese. Now, Father Ralph... Uh, They call him Father Ray. He came in and he did the blessing on the home. Before he left, however, he told George and Kathy that the bedroom on the second floor should not be used as a bedroom. Quote, don't let anyone sleep in there. Keep the door closed. Spend as little time as possible in there. The priest left them with a bottle of holy water to keep on hand. Now, this room that the priest was referring to happened to be the room where young Mark DeFeo and John DeFeo were murdered. Now, this priest, 
Um, he actually remained pretty quiet about his experiences in that room. Um, except for one time. He only talked about it one time in a 1979 episode of a show called In Search Of. He says, and I quote, quote, I was blessing the sewing room. It was cold, really cold in there. He thought it was strange because, yes, it was cold outside, but inside the house, it didn't account for that kind of coldness. While he was in that room, he heard a guttural voice that he thought sounded demonic, and it said, get out. After the events occurred in the house, George believed fully that just by having the house blessed uh, actually made what happened much, much worse, and we'll get to that. But they did listen to the priest, and what they did is they turned this the second floor bedroom into a sewing room. What they also didn't know was that after blessing the house, and this was also mentioned in the In Search of episode, was that Father Ray had developed blisters on his hands and his doctor had no idea where they had come from. He chalked it up to the doctor, chalked it up to anxiety. But, you know, the father, Father Ray is like, hey, I've had anxiety. You know, this doesn't happen. No idea where these blisters came from, but he had an idea. He never did tell George and Kathy about this, though. It didn't take long, however, for George and Kathy to feel strange things within the house. George called them, quote, unseen forces, and they ignored it until it started to become kind of a pattern. Uh, Strange compulsions started with George. You know, shortly after they even walked in the house, he felt the need to build fires in the fireplace constantly using all of the moving boxes as a source. Whatever he tried, he could not get warm unless he was right next to the fireplace. When they later had visitors over, he felt the need constantly to take them outside to show them the boathouse, no matter what the weather was like. The dog wouldn't even enter certain rooms. Just days after moving in, all of a sudden, George started to wake up nearly every night at 3.15 a.m. And this is the same hour that the murders of the DeFeos occurred. He would often hear strange noises, and then he would go around the house checking on the kids and double-checking the doors. He'd then look out at the boathouse, and the boathouse door would be open. He'd walk outside to close it, and come back inside. And this happened on multiple occasions. Kathy began to have nightmares about the murders. These these, uh, nightmares that she had were so detailed, in fact, that she could tell who was murdered in what order and even where the bullets entered and exited the bodies. Now, George and Kathy, they never really wanted to leave this house, you know, for any reason, even though all of this stuff was going on. Even if they had to go to the grocery store, they really found it difficult to leave. They found they were having arguments at the drop of a hat. They had never before raised a hand to the children. But a few days before Christmas, for four hours... They were after the kids for some reason, some small reason, 
yelling and swearing at the kids. George even remembers yelling orders out like he was a, quote, drill instructor. They even hit the boys with a wooden spoon on their backside so hard it left welts. Even visitors who came to the house had a hard time keeping their cool. Uh, One night, the in-laws were visiting, and they sat there glaring at each other, something they had never done before. Kathy's aunt, who is an ex-nun, by the way, visited, and when she was taken around the house, she absolutely refused to even enter certain rooms. George and Kathy would hear strange noises throughout the house. But remember, this was a new house for them. And they just thought it was normal. It was old. It was an old house and, of course, different from where they had come from. So they just thought that it was something they'd just have to get used to. They'd find doors and windows that they knew, they knew they had closed. They would find them open again. If they opened doors or windows, they'd be shut the next time they went back to check on them. George said that when you see things like this, you really begin to question what you're seeing and you begin to doubt yourself. The ceramic on their toilets began to turn black. No matter what they did to scrub it off, it would not come clean. Spots appeared on the carpet out of nowhere. George and Kathy would be lying in bed and they would hear the front door slam shut. So George, what he would do is he would go running down the stairs to see what happened. But all he saw was the dog sleeping by the door completely undisturbed. They knew that the door didn't actually open and slam shut. But they definitely heard the sound of the door. At times when the house was even, say, set at 65 degrees, all of a sudden it would soar up to 80. The sewing room was the absolute worst in the house. They would smell what they could only describe as the smell of dead bodies that would come and go. Flies would cover the windows in the room, even in the dead of winter. Over the course of just a few days... George's personality began to change. He'd snap at the kids. His hygiene suffered. And he was always, always cold. Nothing he did seemed to warm him up. Now, one night, Kathy was sitting in the living room in front of the fire. And as she's sitting there, she felt a hand hold hers. According to Kathy, she said, quote, it felt as like as a woman would take your hand to comfort you. Kathy knew immediately that it was Louise DeFeo, and she didn't know how she knew this. She then all of a sudden blurted out, she's not with her kids. She had no idea why she said what she said, but they did learn the next day that Mrs. DeFeo's family had decided to move her body from the DeFeo plot to another gravesite. Now, Christmas night, George again was awakened at 3.15 in the morning, and again, the boathouse door was open. So he again went out to check on it, and on his way back to the house, he looked up and he saw something moving 
in Missy's bedroom window, the youngest daughter. He runs inside to Missy's room, but nothing is there. Missy was sound asleep. The next morning, Kathy heard Missy talking to someone. So she stopped outside Missy's door and kind of opened it a little bit. Missy was talking and the rocking chair that she had in her room was rocking back and forth with no one in it. Kathy could also hear another voice, but she couldn't see where that other voice was coming from. Then Missy told George and Kathy about Jody. Missy asked her mom, Mommy, do angels talk? Jody appears to Missy as a pig and sometimes as a boy. She told them that sometimes Jody would be small, like a teddy bear, and other times Jody would be bigger than the house. Missy, however, was never, ever, ever afraid around Jody. So again, George and Kathy asked Father Ray to come back and bless the house again, but he refused. Since he never had really communicated with the Lutzes about what had happened to him, they didn't know why he didn't want to come back. It literally broke their hearts because they were, they really needed this help. Again, on another night at 3.15, George wakes up and he hears this incredibly loud noise. He describes this noise as a marching band tuning up. Kathy, however, remains fully asleep right next to him in bed. So he runs down the stairs and he gets halfway down the landing and there's nothing. The dog was there, but he was still fast asleep. The next day, Kathy is downstairs in the basement near a bookcase that she moves out of the way. And behind this bookcase, she finds a small room that's painted very bright red. Now, Harry, their dog, when near this area, would refuse to go anywhere near it. And every so often, a putrid smell would come from this room. When the DeFeos lived in the home, this room actually is where Ron Jr., had a personal collection of items. In this collection, in this little space, it's really, it's not a large room as they show in the movies. It's actually like a six by four uh, room. But in this space was a book on witchcraft, a white feather, a black bottle with a cork, a rifle, a skull, a mirror, and a black candle. Now, after the Lutzes discovered this room, a strange green substance uh, starts to appear in the hallway upstairs. Now, George describes it as a gelatin substance. The carpet was red and the stuff was green. It wasn't there at night, but it was there in the morning. It was sticky and it was wet. And if you wiped it up, it would go away. But the next day it would be back. Now, in another interview, George also references this green substance, but says that it was on the walls. And at first they blamed the kids, but the next time it happened, the kids were in school. So in this same interview, they were also asked if they had ever had a history with the occult or the supernatural. And George said, quote, 
We didn't even believe in it. However, when their son, Danny, who is now grown, was asked a similar question in his own documentary called My Amityville Horror, he said that the books that George had in the house had titles like Mind Control, Hypnosis, Satanic History, and some, quote, pretty dark stuff. Now, Danny at the time, while he was the oldest of the three kids, he was still fairly young. So he was around, I believe, 10 to 12 years old when he lived at the house. The Lutzes began to discover even more odd things. A black-like substance oozed out of the keyholes in the doors. So the Lutzes, what they decide to do is they decide to get in touch with some close friends of theirs. And they actually show up at their friend's house unexpectedly. Uh, They really had to talk to them. So they sat down and they told their friends what was happening in the house. And the friends, they didn't know what to think. But it was such an unbelievable story that their friends thought it was a joke. That night after they went home, George began to have thoughts that weren't like him. They were violent thoughts. Quote, Thoughts that are just not part of your own makeup as you know yourself to be, unquote. So on January 6th, which is Epiphany, or as uh, Kathy referred to it, Little Christmas, they took down all of the holiday decorations. And according to Kathy, quote, after that, it was havoc. The night of the 6th, there was another set of arguments with the kids. And later on in the evening, the noises in the house grew louder And over the following nights, the noises just seemed to increase in volume. Doors and windows began to just open and shut on their own. Once sunrise came, as usual, all this activity stopped. George again called Father Ray and told him what had happened. Father Ray then said that he would contact the local priest who would then who then told George that, hey, he's going to talk to the bishop. So while George is waiting to hear from all of these people, he happens to mention what's happening at the house to a woman at his office who said that she has psychic abilities. She asked George if it was okay if she and a friend stopped over later, and George agreed. So when they showed up, there was George, according to George, there was a movement in the house, quote, like an elephant rolling over in his sleep. The sewing room, however, was so quiet, it was almost deafening. Now, one of the people who had stopped over that night after walking around the house said that it was haunted by the earthbound spirits of those who had died in their sleep, and they just didn't know that they were dead. And George felt as if This was the first intelligent explanation of what was going on that anyone had given him so far. The man further said that in order to get rid of these spirits, he had to go into each room, open a window, and then say a prayer in each corner of that room and tell the spirits to leave. So as soon as this pair left... George and Kathy went about the task of opening the windows and saying prayers in each corner of the room. They did this from the top of the house to the basement. And during this blessing, they heard voices, a chorus of voices, saying, 
will you stop? After shutting all the windows in the house, they sat down on their couch in the living room when Kathy suddenly became terrified. She said, I just saw some eyes in the window. They were red, beady eyes. The window she was looking out of was more than six feet above ground level. And that's it for this episode. We'll continue on in part two when we find out what else happened to the Lutzes and how they fixed the problem. Or did they? I'll see you then. <laughs>